Well, church, we begin today our passage in Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. We begin an expository series entitled The Power of God. The series is on the book of Romans, or actually it's a letter that was written 2,000 years ago to a church in Rome. We would call it the book of Romans. They would have said it was the letter to the Romans, to the Roman church. And the writer or the author of this letter was the Apostle Paul. He probably wrote this letter when he was on, at the end of his third missionary journey, probably in Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. So if you can imagine Paul, maybe in the 50s, 60s A.D., sitting in Greece, on the southern tip of Greece, in Corinth, and he's thinking about this church in the capital city of the, of the Roman Empire, a very important church, a church filled with, with Gentiles primarily, but there were some Jews there, a church where the gospel was a question and an issue, a church where the Jewish-Gentile-Christian uh, interchange was an issue. What about Israel? What about the Jews? Now that Jesus has come and fulfilled the law. So, so Paul is writing this letter to them, the book of Romans. But Paul has never met them. Paul did not plant this church like he did many of the churches to to whom he wrote in the New Testament. Paul had not yet visited this church. He was on his way to Rome, but he hadn't visited yet. So imagine Paul sitting down to write this epistle. And we've called it the power of God because, we've entitled the series the power of God because Romans is about God and his power to save. Romans 1.16 on the screen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see right here in this passage, Paul is immediately addressing the issue of Jew and Gentile. But the big point he's making is this. Here's the power of God to save. He's writing it to a group of Christians in Rome who have been taught that the power to save lies in whom? Caesar, the ruler of the world, the state. Caesar was a god. You worshiped Caesar. He was Lord. Haven't quite gotten there yet, but that may come soon. And and Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, no, it's not Caesar that has the power to save Oh, it may look like Caesar has the power to save. It may look like Caesar has the power to kill you at any moment on a whim. It may look like Caesar is the ruler, the supreme ruler of all the world. But no, it is God. It is God who has the power to save. And immediately, he sets up a collision course between the power and the kingdom of God and the power and the kingdom of Caesar. And these people were very familiar with that because they lived in the capital city. And so Romans is about the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Church, the gospel empowered the early church to live as God's people, fulfilling God's mission. And our prayer, our prayer is that the gospel would empower us to live as God's people. People fulfilling God's mission. We may not be living in Rome, but we are living in a world that says that the power to save does not lie in an invisible God. We say the power to save 
God's power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we were to summarize the purpose of this series in one line, here it is, courtesy of Bentley Campbell Crawford. We are preaching through Romans so that we might get the gospel, that it might sink down deeply into our souls and so saturate the soil of our lives, both individually and corporately, that it might overflow into fruitful gospel ministry. Oh, friends, that's what we're looking for, an overflow of fruitful gospel ministry. So the title of this first message, the first message in the series on Romans is entitled appropriately, The Gospel. The Gospel is the title of this first message. And we are going to read Romans 1, 1 through 7. So please turn there in your Bibles. By the way, if you need a Bible, we have some on this table right back here by the front door. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. If you own one but didn't bring it, please, you can borrow one this morning. I'd love for you to have it open, looking at it, reading it. And if you don't have a Bible, take this one and make notes in it. Ask questions of the text. Ask questions of my sermon. Why did Al say this? Jot it down. Email me. Talk to others. Talk to your community group leader. Children, talk to your parents. Engage this word of God. Because God is engaging us with his word. He's asking us to listen to what he has to say. And before we read, I want us to pray. I want us to pray, and if you would put Bentley's quote back up there, please. I want us to pray that God would empower us by his Holy Spirit to preach, hear, and apply the gospel to our lives in such a way that we get it. That we get it. That it sinks in. It's not like this rain that hits my driveway and rolls off my driveway into the gutter. But it's like the rain that hits my backyard. And it hits the ground, and the ground sinks, it drinks it in. And green grass comes up. Yes, as well, some weeds come up. I get that. But I'm working hard to take care of the weeds and mow the grass. But may our lives be like that. the, The gospel would sink in. And we would experience it as we drink it in deeply. We'd experience the power of God to save, the salvation of God. For some of you, Listen, that may mean repenting for the very first time today and believing on Jesus. For the very first time, what the Bible calls justification. For most of us, though, it means growing in the grace of the gospel to be more like Jesus, what the Bible calls sanctification. That our character would look more and more like Jesus. It means producing gospel ministry, not making it happen, but the gospel, the power of God coming down from on high and the very life of God and the very power of God working in you and me so that we start doing gospel ministry. Just like a tree bears fruit, we bear fruit because the gospel has saturated the roots of our lives. And as we bear this gospel fruit, we would bear witness of Jesus Christ to our community. We would make followers of Christ, what the Bible calls disciples. We would change, and we would look forward to the final aspect of salvation. That's to be glorified one day at Jesus' second coming. Salvation means justification, being made right with God, point in time. Sanctification, what we're walking through right now, changing to be more like Jesus, and our hope one day in glorification, that when Jesus comes back, Our bodies are going to be made new. We're going to live forever with him in the new heavens and new earth. The gospel is the power of God for that, church. 
And so here's our prayer, that we would see it, understand it, live it, share it, and most of all, experience the power of the gospel, this good news of great joy. So let's pray. Lord, you know that it's been a difficult week for many. We are human beings, Lord. We're used to schedules. In the last two weeks, with the holidays being right in the middle of the week, I don't even know what day it is today. I see everybody out here, so I'm assuming it's Sunday. But Lord, honestly, I've been very disoriented this week. Many of us are wrestling with sicknesses, um, family and uh, the holidays can be tumultuous, travel. Lord, would you settle my heart? Would you settle our hearts to hear the most important news ever? The good news, the best news. May it not just fall on us and we say, yeah, yeah, I've got that, Al. And like my driveway, the rain just runs off into the gutter. But, oh God, may it sink into us. And may it bear fruit in us. Gospel fruit. (coughs) I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read, church, Romans 1.1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. I love that. That was a very purposeful statement by Paul there. Not Caesar. Jesus Christ, our Lord, verse 5, through whom, Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, Romans, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. So here in this text, the word gospel appears prominently. So the question is, what is the gospel? The English word translated gospel here comes from the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion. So that's the Greek word. Translation gospel has a range of meaning. This range of meaning includes Good news. I would advocate that's the main meaning here. This is the good news. It's the good news of God's salvation. The good news of God's salvation. And I would say, and I believe Romans would say, the rest of the book is going to be focused on this. The good news of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Because the main driving point of this text, and really the the whole book of, of Romans is this. Jesus Christ is the gospel. Jesus Christ is the gospel. This is the very point that Paul makes when he opens the letter. Now, he opens the letter with these first seven verses. And it's a standard greeting. It's standard in form to all, most letters in the first century. He starts by identifying himself. Hi, I'm Paul. He does that in verses 1 to 6. Then he addresses the recipients. And I'm writing to you, Romans. And then he greets them at the end of verse 7. Grace and peace to you, Romans. Now, what was not standard about this greeting was its length. This is the longest greeting of any of Paul's letters. Paul 
took six verses to describe himself. The whole, hi, it's me. That took six verses. To you, half a verse. Greetings, half a verse. So why did he take six verses to identify himself? Well, many people believe that the reason for this was because he did not know the Roman church. Remember, he's writing from Corinth, most likely, in Greece, modern-day Greece. you got your geography, Mediterranean, Rome, Greece, Italy, Greece. He had not been there yet. He had not planted that church. He had not even visited that church. So he wanted to make sure that they knew who he was, but more importantly, whom he represented. See, in verse 1, look at verse 1. Paul identifies himself as what? A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. See, Paul wrote about the gospel. He was an apostle of the gospel, set apart for the gospel of God at the end of verse 1. He didn't write as some fellow citizen in the Roman Empire. He didn't write as some Jewish man who used to be a Pharisee and now was a Christian. He didn't even write as probably the greatest teacher of Christendom. No. No, no. Pay pay careful attention. How does he introduce himself? He wrote as the apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? Because as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he came with the authority of Jesus Christ. And it was very important for the Romans to understand that what Paul was writing was coming from God himself. And it's important that we understand that or we miss this book. Romans brings the authority of God's very words to us this morning. His very words about the gospel. And how does Paul describe the gospel? Look at verse 1 again. At the end of verse 1, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Now, he describes the gospel here as God's gospel, distinguishing it from the false gospels of the Roman empires. The Roman empire had a gospel. He had good news of great salvation, his salvation. Worship me. I'll give you salvation. I'll give you victory from your enemies. I'll give you money. I'll give you food. I'm your God. False gospel. How many false gospels in your life? Where do you look for life? that can't give you life. So Paul is saying, this is God's gospel. This isn't Caesar's gospel. This isn't a bogus gospel. This is God's gospel. Let's distinguish it clearly. There's no false promise of salvation by some modern day power brokers who come to steal, kill, and destroy. No, this is God's gospel, powerful to save. And look how he describes it at the beginning of verse 2. Which he, God, Promised beforehand through his prophets in holy scriptures. So this gospel is not only God's gospel, but it's the gospel that God has promised through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Thus he roots the gospel in the Old Testament. Remember, Paul was busy writing the New Testament. Hadn't been written yet. So he's, he's rooting the gospel in the Old Testament. Why? Because he wants to make sure that no one's going to say, oh, this gospel thing. It's just some trendy modern philosophy. It's just a new spin. It's just the latest craze in philosophy. It'll come, it'll go. Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. 
No, no. This gospel has been prophesied. God has promised this gospel from the very beginning of time when Adam and Eve sinned and God said to the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush the head of your, of your seed. You will bruise his heel and he'll crush his head. That's God declaring the gospel at the beginning of time. And all through the Old Testament, he keeps promising this gospel through Abraham, a Hebrew, and says, through you, I am going to bless all the nations. That's the promise of the gospel. And then he keeps promising the gospel through Moses and the law as it points to the gospel. And through David, a king who will point to the, the king. And then finally, God, God delivers the gospel to us. See, that's the point. At the core of the gospel. Look what's at the core of the gospel. Look at the beginning of verse 3. This gospel that is God's, this gospel that he promised in the Old Testament through his prophets that we see in scriptures, this gospel is what? What's at the beginning of verse 3? It's concerning whom? His son. His son. That was radical. His son. His son. See, at its core, at its core, the gospel is about a person. At its core, the gospel is about the Son of God. The gospel is not less than propositional truth and statements, but oh friend, oh dear theologian friend, it's more, it's a person. I loved what Ruben preached last Sunday. <coughs> I hadn't heard, hadn't heard that for a long time. A personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, been to seminary, you almost like flinch back off of that one. It's like, whoa, you know, it's like get too existential here, you know. It's like get too experiential. It's just, you know, let's worship God. All the thoughts about God. Yes, it's not less than that. I don't want to do less than that. But oh, friends, at its core, it's about a person. And that person is the Son of God. This term, Son of God, is not one that Paul uses a lot. It's unique here. But what does it speak of? It speaks of the gospel relationship between father and son. God the father, God the son. You see the trinity here. Obviously God the Holy Spirit. But you see see this relationship. It, It points to the vital truth that the gospel is not an impersonal force or idea. But it's a personal relationship between father and son. You see, it's clear from, from three, chapter 3, verse 3a, that the gospel is concerning God's Son. And Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Jesus Christ, thus, is the, the heart of the gospel. So if you learn nothing else this morning, then learn this. At the heart of the gospel is Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. What is the gospel? Oh, I want you to have propositional truths. Trust me, we're going to get a lot of propositional truths here. (laughs) Your head's going to be spinning with propositional truths. Mine was. Still is. But, the gospel is a person. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. So if you learn nothing else, learn that. But, But God's burden this morning is that we will learn more. We would learn more about the Son of God. We'd learn more about Jesus Christ. And to that end, Paul uses two participial clauses. A participle, present participle, just an I-N-G word, right? Just think, I-N-G word. Two I-N-G words. Go ahead, find them. I want you to find them. This is good. You learn how to study your Bible. Two 
participial clauses to describe the Son of God. If the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel is the Son of God, then now Paul's going to describe this Son of God with two participial clauses, these ING words. And you find the first one in verse 3b, according to the flesh. And this describes Jesus as the pre-existent Son of God, who became flesh. This speaks of Jesus' incarnation, God becoming flesh. And so point one, the gospel. Who is the gospel? Jesus Christ is the gospel. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the preexistent Son of God who became flesh. Look at verse 3. Concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. There's that participial clause, present tense, I-N-G word. Jesus Christ is the pre-existent Son of God who became flesh. He's always existed, but he became flesh. By describing him as descending from David, God wants us to know that Jesus is that Savior whom he had been prophesying about and promising seeing from the Old Testament. See, this is the Messiah of Israel. This is the one that all the prophets saw dimly. Is he a suffering servant? Is he a king? Is he going to just rule us politically? Is he going to rule the nations? You get kind of glimpses of him all through the Old Testament. We know someone's coming. We know Messiah is coming. We know it's going to be good news for Israel. We're just not quite sure what he looks like. This is him. That's what Paul wanted to say. This is the one promised by God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God was the Savior born to fulfill God's promise as the angel declared to the shepherds on that night that Jesus was born. Look at Luke 2, 10 and 11. Actually, the angel, not angels. And the angel said to them, the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Euangelion, that's that word right there. Good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. Hmm. Not just Israel. All the people. Not every single person, but all kinds of people. Everybody. All the nations. Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. He's going to be the son of David. Yet David calls him my Lord in Psalm 110. The city of David, a Savior, who is Christ, Messiah. That's what Christ means. The Lord. See, the angel came to bring good news. Euangelion. of great joy for all the people. And that good news of great joy is the Savior, born that day in the city of David. We celebrated that last week, or two weeks ago, whenever it was. Jesus is the good news. He's the euangelion of great joy for all the people. Jesus is the gospel. He is the descendant of David, according to the flesh. He is God who came to earth as a man, He is the pre-existent Son who became flesh and dwelt among us to fulfill the Father's promise to save us. Is he good news of great joy to you? Is the fact that God came to earth to save his people good news of great joy to you? It will be if you see your need for a Savior. It won't be if you don't. You see, if you don't, it'll be interesting news of kind of cool joy. Kind of like reading about a cure for some disease that you have no idea about and glad that you're never going to get it. But wow, I'm so glad they, they, you know, cured that disease. That's good news of kind of okay joy. But if I told you that news, 
If I told you that they had just found a cure for brain cancer, and a very particular kind of brain cancer, and if I told you that news the day after you had just come from the doctor where you'd been diagnosed with that brain cancer, when you had seen the x-rays of the tumors that were growing in your brain in an uncontrollable and alarmingly rapid fashion, Tumors that would blind you and ultimately take your life, like the tumors that blinded and ultimately took the life of my friend Mike Pincus last week, then friend, you would be jumping for joy. You would be selling everything to get that medicine. It would be good news of great joy. See, I pray that God would reveal the gospel to all of us this morning. I pray reveal it to you if it's for the very first time or it's probably to most of us if it's for the 401st time that God would reveal our need for the gospel. I pray that he would bring us all into his office and he would show us the x-ray and he would point to the x-ray of our brain and he would show us those tumors and he'd give us eyes to see the tumors and we'd believe that they're going to kill us. And then, and then if, you're, if you already know him and you have the cure, you would go home and you would maybe take a look at those x-rays that they're in the file cabinet and saying, that's what God healed me from. And you put them on your desk and you'd remember that in your lowest moment. You'd remember that in the moment when you've been sinned against. You remember that when things aren't going your way. You say, I am alive. He healed me of that. But if you don't know him this morning, oh friend, may your eyes be opened. You've got, you've got a fatal, mortal, cancerous tumor. We were all born with it. Jesus is that Savior who takes it from us. And as you see that, you see, friends, this is what we want to do with the book of Romans. It's so show you that good news. It's so go through it and understand this son of God who is the gospel and what that means for us. That it would, it would bring joy. We'd be, a, we'd be a joyful church. Even through our tears. And we'd be a fruitful church. Even in our fears. We would, we would witness of Jesus as the gospel bears fruit in us in a powerful way. This good news would be great joy for us so that we could live by faith in the Son of God. See, that's another theme of Romans. Jim Britt's going to preach that in a couple of weeks, verses 16 and 17. Now, the second participial phrase used to describe the Son of God is in verse 4. According to the Spirit... And what this is describing, I believe, I think scripture bears witness to this, is post-resurrection, the new age of the spirit. If according to the flesh is describing pre-resurrection, the era of the flesh, of death and sin, reigning and defeating people, then Jesus is born into that time, and now Jesus is going to change that, and his resurrection is a key point. You can't preach the gospel without preaching the resurrection of Jesus. It's not just he died for our sins on the cross. He did do that, but he rose from the dead. That's key. That changed everything. Everything. So in verse 4, when, it's, when Paul's describing this son who is the gospel and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Point two. 
Jesus Christ is the pre-existent Son of God who rose from the dead to inaugurate the age of the Spirit. Jesus Christ is the pre-existent Son of God who rose from the dead to inaugurate the age of the Spirit. Everything changed at the resurrection. That is a crucial point in the history of salvation. A new age was inaugurated. The age of the Spirit. Jesus Christ, the pre-existent Son, has always been the Son of God. Please hear that. Always. He has always been, in His essence, very God of very God. Second person of the Trinity. But... At the resurrection, his status or function changed from promised Messiah, suffering servant, to reigning Lord. Think of it as the Lord Jesus emptying himself of glory at his incarnation. Not his divinity, his glory. And at the resurrection, Jesus, the preexistent son, receives back the glory. I mean, he spoke of this in John. I preached on it a couple of weeks ago. There's a glory I'm coming back to. I'm coming back to the glory. Remember he said, I'm going to endure the suffering of the cross for the glory that I see beyond it. The way to glory was suffering, was humiliation. See, Jesus spoke of this glory. The glory he has with the Father. Okay, look at Philippians 2. I think this will help. And I know this is a difficult concept to get. But we're going to hammer this. The scripture is going to hammer this all the way through in Romans. But look at Philippians 2 to get the idea of this. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not of being God, but of the glory, the prerogatives he had in heaven. Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the incarnation. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore, 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 Jesus obeyed the Father. Jesus said, though I don't want to go there, not my will, but thy will be done in the garden. He said, yes, Father, to his will. And the Father did what? Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Highly exalted him above every name and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. The knee of Caesar will bow to Jesus. That's radical for a Christian living in Rome at that time. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Curios, not Caesar, Jesus. And only Jesus. Christians were martyred in Rome, not because they said Jesus is Lord, but because they said Jesus is the only Lord, the Lord of Lords. You could say a bunch of Lords, as long as Caesar was in there, I said, nope, Jesus is Lord. Curios. To the glory of God the Father. This is the idea. See, the resurrection changed everything. At the resurrection, Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father in glory. Well, actually, after the ascension. Looking at those as a package deal. Resurrection, ascension. I know there was 40 days in between them. That glory came at the resurrection. And because the glory, and this glory is the glory of the new age. Jesus, as the Son of God, is powerful to bring salvation to all who believe in this new age of the Spirit. We're going to explore that as we study this book. The inauguration of this new age is attributed to Christ's resurrection. This is why the resurrection is so key in preaching the gospel. It ushered in the new age of the Spirit, the new age of redemption in 
Christ. Now Paul concludes verse 4 with the words, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For Paul, Lord expresses Jesus' cosmic majesty. His status as master of the universe and master of the believer. Master of the believer. And here, folks, in these first four verses, we really see we have a biblical Christology. Christology, study of, study of Christ. A biblical Christology. You do well to study it. Jesus Christ, Son of God, descended from David, Messiah, and Lord of all. What's the appeal? What does this text call us to? Or better said, if I were preaching, if there were a hand behind me right now, which there is an invisible one, and it's God's hand, and he were pointing at each one of us, what is God's burden? What does God want us to get? I believe that part of what he wants us to get is that Jesus Christ is the gospel, and that Jesus Christ should define our lives. Look how Paul defined himself. A servant of Christ. You see that in verse 1? A slave of Christ. You could also translate that. He defines himself as one called, as an apostle. Look how he defines the recipients of the letter, the Romans. Drop down to verse 7. To all those in Rome, excuse me, I'm sorry, verse 6, including you who are called to what? Belong to Jesus Christ. This gospel must define us. We belong to him, not to ourselves. It defines us, friends. It defined Paul. It defined the early church. It should define our church. What defines Palm Vista Community Church? Is it the gospel? Oh, I pray it is. What defines Alpino? See, what defines Alpino and all of you, that answer will answer what defines Palm Vista. Because Palm Vista cannot be defined by the gospel if its members aren't defined by the gospel, or at least moving in that direction. And there's a radical difference in lives that are defined by the gospel rather than defined by how much money they make, what color their skin is, how educated they are, who they hang out with, how cool they may or may not be, or even what football team they root for. And then look at this. Appeal. God's saying, the gospel must define you. And God's saying, and the gospel empowers you. The Father says, listen, I've sent the Son. Everything's new. He's raised from the dead. I raised him from the dead. The Spirit now is ruling. This is the age of the Spirit. So you have power. Look at this. Paul in verse 5, he understood this. Look at verse 5. Through whom, that is the Son that he's just described, Jesus Christ, who he just named, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. That's the mission. This is declaring the gospel. The obedience of faith can be seen both as obey faith, have faith in Jesus. So I call you to have faith. If you don't have faith right now, you're not a believer. I'm saying obey God. And for the believer, the obedience of faith is walk as one who is now called of God. You have a new life. It's a new age of the spirit. You're no longer in the age of the flesh where you're a captive to sin and death and and all that junk. You are now a child of the age of the spirit, a child of God and Jesus. Be who you are. And this is what we do as a church. We call people to the obedience of faith. How? We trust in the grace of God, as Paul did. It empowers us. Look, Look how he finally does greet the Romans. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul clearly understood that it was Jesus who called and empowered him. 
Jesus who gave him the grace to fulfill the gospel mission. Friends, Jesus is our grace and peace. This is the power, dear friends, to live as those who belong to him, producing gospel ministry in our lives, bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, beginning right here in South Florida. Do we believe in the power of the gospel? It is the power of God for salvation. Do we believe it? The power to make disciples, the power to call the lost to Christ, the power to save, to sanctify, to glorify, the power to build us into a church and a people who belong to Jesus Christ. That is what God bids us to believe through the study of the book of Romans. Let us be defined by Jesus Christ, the gospel. Let us be empowered by Jesus Christ, the gospel. Let us be his people who enjoy the gospel that we might live the gospel and share the gospel. Let us pray. Worship team, if you can please join me up here. Lord, if there are those here this morning that have not been captivated by the gospel, that Jesus Christ is not their Lord, they serve whatever other Lord that we serve, Today it's not Caesar, but whatever it is, anything other than Jesus Christ. Would you have mercy on them, Lord? Would you show them their need for the gospel? Would you reveal the Son to them? Would you give them, Lord, a picture of the one who was born descendant of David, God incarnate, who came to bring good news of great joy to those who would repent and believe, to inaugurate his kingdom, the one who at his resurrection inaugurated the new age of the Spirit. Lord, would you call them? Would you open their eyes? Let me just pause. If that's you, I'd, I'd love to speak with you after the service. I'll, I'll be right here. We can talk. Or you can speak to someone that's right next to you. But respond to the gospel, dear friend. Believe. I'm calling you to obedience, to faith in Christ. And Lord, I pray for those of us that have believed and Lord, are struggling to obey you in whatever area in our lives. Lord, give us a fresh view of the gospel, a fresh joy of the gospel. Remind us that we had the terminal cancer. And then you saved us, gave us life. And then give us hope that we can change by the power of the gospel. It's your power for salvation, not just for justification, point in time to be saved and converted, but ongoing sanctification to be changed to the image of Christ. Lord, give those of us that are struggling a hope of the glory to come. Oh, we just celebrated Advent, and that is Christ's first coming, but it was also to point to his second coming. May that reality give us hope in the midst of our trials and suffering and disappointments and sicknesses and even poverty. Lord, may we be a church that is defined by the gospel. And may our confession be the song we're about to sing. All that we need is found in Jesus. Let's stand, church. Let's sing this as a confession together in response to the word that we just heard.